You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Imagine you're 10 years old and it's a bright, sunny morning on a midsummer's day. You can already feel the heat. The sky is cloudless and powder blue without a trace of wind. The trees are wilting. There's a smell of sun-baked dust all around you, and the air feels heavy and thick, like you have to suck it in with each breath. It's a perfect day for a trip to the lake. So your family loads up the car and you're off, windows down, radio blaring. You're in the back seat, your hands dipping and rising in the air, rushing past the window. Finally, you crest a hill, and a horizon of sparkling blue stretches out before you, and you can't wait to get in the water. You arrive, and the cooler and towels have barely hit the ground when you strip off your shirt, kick off your shoes, and sprint across the shimmering sand. Behind you, a distant voice calls out to, Be careful, and stay close to the shore. The last few words are just a muffled noise as you dive headfirst into the water. The next few moments are silent bliss as you plunge deeper into the lake, feeling the water grow colder as your belly skims above the bottom, and you admire the dappled sunlight playing on the rocks and the few tiny fish that flit away into the darkness as you approach. You surface, then dive again. Below the waves of a speedboat's wake, listening to the distant thrum of its motor. You brush past slender forests of lakeweed and twist your body, then break through the surface and tread water as you examine the shore. You see your mother looking at you, or is she looking past you? At something behind you? You hear a distant scream closer to shore. Surely it's just some kids playing in the water. Or was it a scream of terror? Was that sound you heard as you were diving the echo of a boat engine? Or a monstrous roar? Something brushes your leg and you look down, but all you see is darkness. The stories of the lake suddenly flood your mind of a great being that lurks in its depths. You start to imagine a shape taking form in the abyss below, a product of an over-anxious imagination, a black fin a serpentine body, a head shaped like a horse's head with an open mouth gliding silently towards you. You quickly claw your way to shore and breathe a huge sigh of relief and embarrassment once your foot hits the ground. In that moment, the stories you had heard your entire life were suddenly true, and what was an incredible legend became overwhelmingly real. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. The scenario you just heard is likely familiar to a number of Canadians. And that's because Canada is home to over 62% of the world's lakes. Across every province, many Canadians have fond memories of spending time on and around their local lake, fishing, hunting, camping, boating, and swimming. 
With so many popular lakes, it's no wonder that Canada is also home to an exceptional number of stories and sightings of lake monsters, from Quebec's Memphrey to Ottawa's Mussy to New Brunswick's Old Ned. But none are more famous than the mysterious being said to inhabit British Columbia's beautiful Lake Okanagan. But it's not just a legendary lake monster marketing ploy or mascot. Its history, its representation, and its cultural significance are as deep and as variable as the lake itself. Tonight, we'll explore that depth as we examine the mystery and the history of Ogopogo, the sometimes terrifying, sometimes whimsical lake creature, and Inhahaitka, the Insilican word for the sacred being of Okanagan Lake. When I was a kid growing up in the suburbs of Vancouver, my family would often spend part of the summer in the Okanagan, a sun-soaked valley about 300 kilometers northeast of the Lower Mainland, in the unceded territory of the Silk Okanagan people. The region is known for its outstanding orchard fruit, award-winning wines, and recreational lifestyle, boating and hiking in the summer, snowshoeing and snowboarding in the winter all made possible by the sunny climate and the colossal glaciers that retreated across BC's interior plateau over 10,000 years ago, leaving behind a string of stunningly beautiful lakes within a lush and verdant valley. I remember traveling Highway 97 between Penticton and Kelowna, looking out over the sparkling blue waters of Okanagan Lake, spotting the cars and crowds gathered along its various beaches, watching the boats and jet skis roar across its surface, and asking my father when we would finally be at our destination. When would I finally be able to dive headfirst into that cool blue? Soon was always the answer. My mother would offer helpful suggestions. Why don't you read? A twice-read copy of Mad Magazine lay crumpled at my feet. Why not play your Nintendo? Ugh, my Game Boy had begun to fade somewhere around Merritt and now lay defeated by my side. And then my mother would make another suggestion. A Hail Mary of an idea that was equal parts outrageous and intriguing. Look out your window and watch for Ogopogo. Of course... Ogopogo, the elusive creature said to lurk in the murky depths of Okanagan Lake. I had read all about it in dog-eared books on monsters and the mysteries of the unknown found in the shadowy lower shelves of my school library. It had been called Canada's answer to Scotland's Loch Ness Monster, but the Ogopogo actually predates Nessie by over 80 years. Also, not to toot our own horn, but Lake Okanagan is three times longer than Loch Ness, and just a little bit deeper, so if there's anything mysterious lurking in either lake, the odds are with the Okanagan. Now, you could see Ogopogo's likeness all around Kelowna, in parks and playgrounds, in the logos of businesses, on the signs of stores and restaurants, and, of course, in all sorts of souvenir bric-a-brac, from t-shirts and pins to glassware and toys. One year, my grandparents, who lived there, gave me and my brother something special that they had found in one of the countless tourist shops across the valley. It was a large sealed tin can wrapped in a gaudy red label that featured a cartoon of the legendary lake monster. 
The label declared that the contents of the can was nothing less than an exceptionally rare and exceptionally delicate Ogopogo egg, carefully sealed in pristine lake water and perfectly pressurized to provide the ideal atmosphere for the egg's gestation. The can was heavy, and you could hear the egg banging around inside when you flipped it upside down. The label warned us to not even look at a can opener until some distant date far in the future, when the egg would be finally ready to hatch. Even us kids knew it was nonsense, but the simple thought that inside that flimsy tin can there just might be the progeny of a legendary lake monster was enough to keep us captivated. However unlikely it seemed, in our view, we could have been holding in our little hands one of the greatest scientific finds of the 20th century. But only if we were patient enough, attentive enough, and lucky enough. Fame, fortune, and glory would inevitably follow. That is what kept us quiet during those long drives in the hot car, peering at the lake between roadside fruit stands and billboards, assessing every shape every shadow, every ripple on the water. Unfortunately, we never saw anything on the lake that couldn't be explained, and by the time I actually got the chance to hit the beach and go for a swim, I had all but forgotten my brief foray into cryptozoology. That is, until I swam out a little too far, looked down at my kicking feet, and began to imagine all the things that might be lurking below. The Ogopogo was then, and is now, arguably Canada's best-known legend, and, according to author W. Hayden Blackman, one of the most thoroughly documented, unidentified lake creatures in the world. In my own small way, I was joining thousands of others in an investigation that has taken place for over a century, riding the crest of a wave of Ogopogo obsession that began in the 1920s and peaked in the late 80s or early 90s, but how far back do the stories go? And who is telling them? Part 1. What Lies Beneath It's late November of 1873. Having just put down her children for the night, Susan Allison pushes aside the flap of her family's tent and steps out onto a frost-covered meadow. She can hear the cattle moving slowly behind her as she looks out over the lake, a long ribbon of starlight on the valley floor. She thinks back to yesterday when she first came down from the mountains, gently holding the reins but letting the horse find his footing and pick his way along the rocks, one child squirming in the saddle, the other tied to her back, fast asleep. Her companions talked and laughed as they traveled, showing her and the children the vegetation along the trail, the long green leaves and brown pods of Indian hemp, the red berries of rattlesnake weed, until they came to the lake and were so struck by its beauty, they were left speechless. It was dead calm without a stitch of wind or wave. The sky was clear and blue and the distant mountains reflected in its water. All was silent and still, except for a few white swans grazing at the water's edge. That evening, they told stories about the big men who lived in the mountains, and the mysterious being said to live in the lake. Yakum Tikum, her husband's brother-in-law and the group's cook, said that he would drop a chicken into the lake whenever he crossed. He imagined that the creature in the water would seize the animal and allow his canoe to safely pass. 
He gestured to a squat little island, a rocky mass rising up from the dark water covered in short grass and stunted trees. That was its home. In the morning, they followed the shore north through tall, rust-colored ryegrass until they came to the only natural meadow on the lake. Sunnyside, she would call it, the site of their future cabin home. Now, with eons of starlight glittering beyond what will one day be her front door, Susan is in a thoughtful mood and eager for a story. There's a sharp chill in the air, and she rubs warmth into her shoulders as she makes her way to the firelight and the low-voiced figures huddled around it, stopping and smiling when Yakum Tikum's young niece and her husband's daughter, Lily, runs by giggling, her uncle not too far behind. Susan is greeted warmly by the circle of storytellers. Some are old friends. Some are new faces. Respected members of the local indigenous communities who have come out to welcome the newcomers to their lands. After introductions are made, the stories begin. First, there are hunting tales, stories of big game and the dangers of the valley, of tumbles from treacherous cliffs, and ways to treat the life-threatening bites of the rattlesnakes that lay coiled and hidden in the rocky terrain. Finally, the conversation shifts to the supposed creature in the lake, how it seizes men and deer in its giant jaws and devours them on its island home. How that island is covered with sun-bleached bones. How some who dare cross the lake throw their shawls over their heads or squeeze their eyes shut lest they see the thing slide through the water. How it can summon storms and strong winds at will. Some at the campfire are fearful of the beam. Others show more of a quiet reverence. But a few, like Susan's husband, are skeptical. They laugh or shake their heads. Then Johnny McDougall, a builder, trader, and farmer of mixed descent, leans close to the flames and peers at the faces of each of his companions. The stories are true, he says. Something monstrous lives in that lake, big enough to take an entire team of horses. Susan and her companions listen intently as he shares his story. It was early autumn, when the grasses were beginning to seed, when Johnny decided to bring his team of horses across the lake and put them to work reaping hay. It was a trip he had taken many times, driving them past Father Pandozi's mission and north for a mile or so to the Narrows. The lake was mirror calm, and he saw in the clear water flashes of dark silver and deep red, the telltale signs of spawning kokanee as far as twenty feet from the shore. Yet, despite the stillness, the horses whinnied and stamped restlessly whenever he led them to the water's edge. He and his boys gathered the creatures and drove them to the shoreline again and again, but each time they would cry out, rear up, and break wildly back up the hill. In the end, he had no choice but to rope them together and lash them to his canoe. With one boy towing the team in front and another driving them from behind, Johnny's canoe finally split the stillness of the water, which was soon trampled and kicked into a froth by the horse's reluctant approach. In time, the creatures began to calm as the cool water rippled over their backs, and it seemed that the rest of the journey, a distance of just under a mile, would go smoothly. Now, Johnny wasn't from the valley, 
but he had traveled far and wide as an employee of the Hudson's Bay Company, and he had seen his share of remarkable things. So when the locals told him that it was customary to place an offering into the water as you crossed, Johnny followed their advice. Whenever he traveled to the opposite shore, he was always sure to bring along a chicken or a small pig, which he would drop in the water when he reached the center of the lake. It was an act which, according to some, would help ensure a successful journey. But on this brisk fall morning, with his beloved horses swimming in tow several feet behind him, Johnny realized that he had forgotten his offering. They were almost at the center, too far to turn back now, so he pushed on, talking out loud as he paddled, reassuring his horses and himself that the tales told by firelight were only stories all the while keeping one eye fixed in the direction of the squat little island that loomed just out of sight in the southern reaches of the lake. They had just cleared the deepest part when there was a sudden tug on the rope. It was gentle at first. Johnny heard it more than he felt it, the sound of the fibers crackling and stretching as the rope pulled taut. The next tug was stronger, jolting the canoe backwards, and he heard a commotion behind him, a thrashing in the water, and the startled cries of his horses. He looked back to see his horse's eyes bulging, nostrils flaring, craning their necks in a desperate attempt to keep their heads above the surface. A massive shadow appeared below their flailing forms, and Johnny watched helplessly as something, he couldn't see what, dragged them down into the water. They were gone in one terrifying moment. He watched their forms melt away in the barrel abyss. Then the canoe began to tip, and Johnny nearly fell overboard. Water began to flood over the sides. Thinking quickly, he pulled a knife from his waist and, with shaking hands, hacked and sawed away at the rope. The canoe lurched upward as he severed each strand, the stern now sinking, the frigid water now pooling at his knees. After several breathless seconds, the rope snapped like a gunshot, and the canoe kicked free. Johnny didn't linger. As the last of the rope plunged straight down into the water, he took up his paddle and hurried to shore. He never saw his horses again, and he couldn't explain exactly what had happened, though part of him believed that their bones might soon appear on the blood-stained rocks of that little island in the south of the lake. Though Johnny had forgotten to bring his usual offering, it seemed that the spirit of the lake had claimed one just the same. Part 2. The Sacred Spirit of the Water The story you just heard is based on true events told to Susan Allison by Johnny McDougall around a campfire back in 1873, it is, as far as we know, the earliest recorded story of an encounter with what many today know as Ogopogo. And it's still as intriguing today as it was then, leaving us wondering if Johnny's horses simply tired from the swim, or if something really did pull them under. Of course, stories of an entity or being in the lake go back much farther as part of the unrecorded oral traditions of the various indigenous groups that live in and around the Okanagan. And that brings us to a very important point, the nature of the thing. These days, the being in the lake is commonly referred to as a monster, or in friendlier terms, a creature of some kind. 
that's certainly how Susan and Johnny saw it. But the Seelk, the indigenous people of the Okanagan, see it differently. They are the ones who gave it its name, Nhaha'itk, which, according to Seelk elders and knowledge keepers like Yamakwa, Marley, and Squawkin, means the sacred being in the water. She explained to a reporter from Indigenews that to many Seelk people today, Nhaha'itk is the spirit of the water, not just the lake, but of all the waters throughout the region vital for their food, trade, transportation, and culture. Some consider it to be a physical creature, others more of an ethereal spirit that may occasionally take a tangible form. Either way, they tell us that it's important that the being in the lake is not feared or demonized, but respected, protected, and honored. All of the tourism, commercialization, merchandising, and monster hunting is regularly and wrongly justified by some people who point to the indigenous traditions as proof that a monster lives in the lake. But that kind of thinking trivializes something that many consider to be sacred. As a settler myself, currently recording this episode on the unceded land of the Stalo people, and who grew up in all of that commercialized cultural appropriation, it's important to me to acknowledge that, in this episode, I am essentially talking about two different things. One is Nhaha'itk, the sacred being of the lake that has spiritual and cultural meaning for a lot of people. The other is Ogopogo, the sensationalized, commercialized lake monster that was inspired by, but is separate from, the first. Many blame settler society for twisting this sacred spirit into a monster, and while it's true that the culture has regularly demonized indigenous beliefs, and it played and continues to play the biggest part in popularizing and tokenizing the sacred being of the lake, it seems that early inspiration might have come from the stories shared with them by indigenous people from regions outside the Okanagan, fueled by misunderstandings and misinterpretations. According to Susan Allison, her indigenous companions used two different terms for the creature. She couldn't speak their language, and her companions weren't fluent in English, so they communicated in Chinook Wawa, a Creole intercultural trade language of the Pacific Northwest. Now, as a side note, if you're from BC, you're likely familiar with a few Chinook Wawa words, like skookum, which means strong, chuck, which means water, potluck, which is an exchange of food and gifts, and cultus, which means bad or worthless, as in cultus lake. Using a language developed for trading purposes to bridge the communication gap meant that the name assigned to the bean would be particularly descriptive. The first was Hyasyas Gust Skaka Kopa Lake, which means, according to Allison, the huge animal in the lake. The second was more fearful, Okok Misachi Kopa Lake, the evil or wicked one in the lake. Both names suggest a flesh-and-blood creature that could pose a significant threat to wayward travelers. The idea of dropping a sacrifice into the lake may have also come from an early misunderstanding. According to Susan Ellison, both Yakumtikum and Johnny would regularly drop a chicken or small pig into the water to either distract or appease the creature. If that's true, they may have been misinterpreting ceremonies for sacrifices to the dangerous creature they heard so much about. There is, for example, a salmon ceremony, where the bones of fish consumed during a communal feast are returned to the water, as well as other customs where tobacco, sage, or bits of fish or deer might be dropped into the lake as a way of saying thank you for continuing to provide food and water. 
And then there are the stories. Allison only shares small details of what she heard, but they're powerful nonetheless. Images of sun-bleached bones piled high on the shore of the creature's island, known as Rattlesnake Island today, animals being dropped over the side of canoes, and women covering their heads in fear as they cross. It could be that these stories are so full of frightening imagery because, from what I can tell, the storytellers were not from the sea ilk communities that lived along the lake, but more likely from the upper Similkamine or other communities to the west. Allison noted how, when her group first sighted Okanagan Lake, the indigenous people among her, quote, unused to vast water stretches, ceased their merry talk and gazed at the blue waters with awe, end quote. The long lake, with its high winds and choppy water, so sacred to the locals, could have been frightening to outsiders. And that may help to explain why people like McDougall and Allison got the impression that the Okanagan was home to some sort of aquatic, horse-eating monster. But what about the people who are indigenous to the Okanagan? Do they have stories about Nhahaik? Well, there are two stories in particular that seem to be ingrained in the region's greater folklore, repeated over and over again in books and on websites, and not just in the fun, spooky stuff about monsters and the supernatural, but in serious pieces focused on history and tourism as well. The first is a story attributed by the late Ogopogo researcher and writer Arlene Gull to the late Dave Parker, a storyteller, Okanagan Indian band member, and language keeper of the Sealk Okanagan Nation. It tells how, long ago, a kindly old man named Old Kanhikon was murdered by an outsider who was possessed by the spirit of, quote, the evil one, end quote. As punishment, the gods transformed the evil man into a lake serpent, quote, a restless creature who would forever be at the scene of the crime where he would suffer continued remorse, end quote. The serpent was then left in the care of the beautiful goddess of the lake and was called, quote, Inhahait, the remorseful one, who must live in the lake with other animals, end quote. Finally, in honor of the murdered old Kanhikan, the people named the biggest lake in the valley Okanagan. While this tale is certainly compelling, Without any context or introduction, it's unclear if it was told as part of a culture's oral traditions or as simply an entertaining story. Perhaps the most confusing part are the origins that Parker offers for the name of the lake and of the being said to inhabit it, as both explanations are contradicted by modern silk knowledge keepers. For example, according to one elder, one explanation for the word Okanagan is that it comes from a Encelican word Sukanakwan, the term for a messenger of sorts who would run long distances between the valley floor to the mountaintops. The website for the Okanagan Indian Band clarifies further, telling us that the direct translation is transport toward the head or top end, referring to how people traveled from the head of Okanagan Lake to where the Okanagan River meets the Columbia. And of course, we know that Nhahaik does not mean the remorseful one or lake demon, as some translators would later claim, but simply the sacred being in the lake. The second story is from area historian Frank Buckland, who in 1904 moved to the Okanagan from Manitoba, and before that, Ontario, when he was in his early 30s. Unlike Parker, Buckland doesn't offer us an origin story, but rather a morality tale about an outsider who disrespected the sacred being and paid the ultimate price. 
The story goes that a chief from a southern community named Timbasket came with his family to the region to attend a large summer gathering. The plan was that Timbasket, his family, and his friendly hosts would start paddling their canoes from the north end of the lake to the south where the gathering would occur. The shamans of the northern village planned to sacrifice a live dog by pushing it into the lake as they neared Rattlesnake Island. They cautioned the chief to wait until the sacrifice was complete and to keep his distance from that sacred spot, but the prideful chief scoffed at what he felt were silly superstitions. Proudly paddling his family's canoe, he broke off from the group and, in an incredible sign of disrespect, ventured too close to the island. His punishment came swiftly. A stiff gale blew across the rocks of Squally Point, and a towering waves lashed by the creature's tail upset the chief's canoe. The rest of the group could only watch in horror as every trace of Timbasket and his family were pulled beneath the waves in a swirl of water. This story is even more popular than the first, and is still found in history books published as recently as 2021, but it too has its problems. First, though it was written by an historian, it seems that the author never provided a source for the story, only the vague reassurance that, quote, it is related on good Indian authority, end quote. Where that authority came from is anyone's guess. In his research, writer John Kirk asked a number of people from the Okanagan nations if they had ever heard this story, and the answer was a resounding no. It seems that no one had heard of Chief Timbasket or of his watery demise. In 1990, the tale was published by the local historical society as part of a longer piece titled Story of Ogopogo, and it included this footnote, quote, Frank Morgan Buckland was a co-founder of the Okanagan Historical Society in 1925. This story was written about 1927 for the entertainment of his brothers and sisters. The copyright is assigned to the Kelowna branch of the OHS by Mrs. Charles Buckland, a daughter-in-law of the author." End quote. Faced with this footnote and no clear source, it seems that this story may be closer to fiction than oral history. And Kirk seems to agree, noting in his book that, quote, it may have been the work of the fertile imagination of the white man, end quote, and that the story might have become part of local folklore thanks to, quote, an old print that hung upon the wall of a Peachland hotel many years ago, end quote. Of course, the best people to ask about all of this would be the Seelk people themselves. So I did. A year ago, I sent a message to the nation, along with a completed intellectual and cultural request form found on their website. Despite my follow-ups, I never heard back. My experience seems to be similar to other researchers, so I know it's not personal. And to be honest, I can't blame them for not responding. What's the point of talking over and over again about a singular topic from your culture that has been chronically misunderstood, misappropriated, and maligned for over a century? And perhaps there are oral histories and traditions that simply aren't meant to be shared. As elder and knowledge keeper Yamakwa Marlene Squawkin told a reporter from Indigenews.com, quote, Some stories can't and shouldn't be shared because they belong to the Seelk people and hold sacred law, end quote. Or maybe everything they want to say about the topic has already been said, that Nhahaik is considered to be both a sacred creature of sorts and the spirit of the water. It doesn't eat horses, people, pigs, or puppies, and it shouldn't be feared. 
It shouldn't be demonized as a monster or trivialized into a cute, cuddly mascot or stuffed animal. It should be respected and left alone. But, as I've said in the past, people love a good mystery. And the idea that a real-life lake serpent could be living in one of BC's most beautiful and accessible lakes is intriguing to a lot of people. Throughout the late 19th and early 20th centuries, as more people flocked to the sunny slopes of the Okanagan Valley, many began to see something mysterious in the lake. The stories and the speculation grew, and the lake and its inhabitants would soon become world-famous. Part 3. Looking for the Ogopogo on August 23, 1926, the Vancouver Board of Trade was in Vernon, B.C., a small town on the northeast shore of Okanagan Lake that was one stop on their tour of the valley. During a luncheon at the Kalamaka Hotel, hosted by the local Rotary Club, the esteemed delegates were entertained by Rotarian Bill Brimblecombe and his rendition of a sassy little foxtrot that was, at the time, all the rage in British nightclubs. That song was The Ogopogo, Written by Cumberland Clark and Mark Strong. The silly lyrics of the up-tempo song were slightly altered to make it more BC-appropriate, and it was an instant hit with its audience, throwing a whimsical framework at something that was still being called the Demon of the Lake in a mistranslation of its indigenous name. The next day, journalist Ronald Kenvin of Vancouver's Daily Province newspaper declared that, henceforth, Ogopogo was, quote, the official name of the famous Okanagan sea serpent, end quote. Sure, Inhahaiku was the sacred, meaningful name used by the people who had been living there since before recorded history, but it just wasn't as catchy as a goofy, nonsensical palindrome. The name proved popular and soon became so ubiquitous and so iconic that some began to claim that Ogopogo was actually an indigenous word. In 1932, the Vernon News informed its readers that Ogopogo meant, quote, the bearded one who jumps, end quote. And shamefully, as recently as 2021, the Canadian press declared, quote, Ogopogo means spirit of the lake, end quote. Thanks to the nature of modern media, this false fact was shared by popular news sources like the Vancouver Province, the Globe and Mail, and CTV News. With a fancy new name, the Okopogo was ready to welcome tourists and businesses alike to the rich, fertile lands of the Okanagan Valley. If you were the timid type who didn't relish the idea of spending your summer with a legendary lake monster, well, you were in luck. Within days of Kenvin's article, the province was reporting how Kelowna's new ferry would be sufficiently armed to, quote, repel attacks of Mr. Ogopogo and family, end quote. By the end of that same year, he was already selling peaches and drinkware, and the Calgary Daily Herald declared the creature to be, quote, the biggest asset and the greatest mystery of the sunny Okanagan district, end quote. The Ogopogo soon became a symbol of community pride as well. The various towns of the valley argued and competed for the right to declare themselves its official home, and his name was used for local sports teams and tournaments. 
When three kids took pot shots at the supposed creature with a 22 caliber rifle in 1949, the editor of Kelowna's local paper chastised the boys for the reckless act, writing, quote, What would the Okanagan be without the Ogopogo? And how would they have felt had a lucky bullet actually killed him? End quote. The beloved creature's name, together with different illustrations that range from Saturday morning cartoon to violent B-movie, have been used to sell everything from apples to ice cream to golf. He's been the star and subject of parades, children's books, playgrounds, and this banger of a song by Bruce Garish, produced in cooperation with the Okanagan Similkamine Tourism Association back in 1982. You gotta love that cheesy, kitschy, synth-pop swagger that only the 80s could produce. Fifty-six years had passed since that fateful day in 1926 when a flippant foxtrot gave the spirit of the lake its new name, and thanks to the marvels of marketing, the Ogopogo had fully transformed from a fearsome, puppy-eating demon into a cartoonish, kid-friendly creature who is ready to be your friend. This song signaled the beginning of what would be called Ogopogo Mania, a period of several years between the early 1980s and the early 1990s when it seemed like everyone was hunting for, as the song says, the Great Okanagan Mystery. It was released by the Tourism Association at the same time that they announced there would be a $1 million reward for anyone who could prove that Ogopogo was real. As the album cover art declared, the Ogopogo was now the, quote, million-dollar monster, end quote. In a stroke of tourism genius, newspapers across the country announced the unconventional award alongside a list of fast facts about the area, including the number of hotel rooms, golf courses, and wine tours that were available. The stunt was successful, not in finding Ogopogo, but in improving tourism. Maybe too successful. Arlene Gall tells us that there was at least one fake photo that someone tried to pass off as real in the early 1980s. The culprit was apparently the owner of a local motel who was distressed by the fact that a combination of a decline in Ogopogo sightings and poor weather had resulted in fewer tourists. He had hoped that his fake photo might reduce his vacancies. International interest was already on the rise before the million-dollar announcement. In January of 1977, the American television show In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy, visited the valley to talk with multiple eyewitnesses and scrutinize the evidence. Arthur C. Clarke's Mysterious World, a popular British television series, did the same in 1979. But the reward brought a new level of creature-hunting enthusiasm. In 1985, two divers and mechanical contractors announced plans to launch an in-depth, two-month-long expedition that would search the lake from Penticton in the south to Vernon in the north, using five state-of-the-art sonar machines capable of spotting and tracking a fish up to a depth of 2,000 feet. They also planned to have a team of divers, a cameraman, and even a submarine, all ready to drop at a moment's notice should anything unusual appear. 
The team had some serious plans, including a one-hour documentary to capture every tantalizing detail, and they counted among their members respected zoologists, oceanographers, biologists, and underwater recovery specialists. Unfortunately, the organizers failed to raise the capital they needed, and their plans never panned out. The following year, a BC inventor contacted the famous Ogopogo expert Arlene Gall and declared that he would personally search for the supposed monster using a custom-built million-dollar robot designed to walk along the bottom of the lake. The robot could withstand hundreds of pounds of pressure, detect metal, pick up objects, and even play music in the hope of luring any curious creatures out from their hiding spots. I've got a million-dollar robot, he told Gall, and I guess I'll continue the search until I'm broke. Fortunately for him, it never went that far. According to Gall, when the robot hit the water, it failed almost immediately. Next, in January of 1990, legendary host Robert Stack lent his spooky, velvety voice to Tales of the Ogopogo for a feature on the hit TV show Unsolved Mysteries. Allegedly, the producers paid a local used car salesman $30,000 for the exclusive first-time rights to his footage of a beaver. Then, in July of that same year, the Okanagan Valley hosted one of the most comprehensive searches ever conducted on the lake, courtesy of Japan's Nippon Television and their popular series World's Greatest Phenomena. For seven straight days, a team of divers plunged beneath a mist-covered lake, armed with underwater cameras. Above them, camera operators, sonar machines, and reporters sped across the surface in motorboats, and helicopters were ready to take to the skies at a moment's notice. All of this was managed from a cutting-edge mobile headquarters stationed in a houseboat that slowly maneuvered between Rattlesnake Island and Squally Point, a distance of about two and a half kilometers. Writer Arlene Gall served as official consultant, and later wrote about it in her book In Search of Ogopogo. As the sonar machines began sending back data on the area near Squally Point, Arlene was captivated by what appeared to be a long four-and-a-half to six-meter-wide tunnel that seemed to lead, in her words, to unknown depths. She wondered if that tunnel, and others like it, might lead to the hidden home of the elusive Ogopogo. Later, the sonar picked up something even more intriguing, a mass of some kind that appeared to be 30 feet long, moving through the water over 350 feet below. There were indications of air bubble activity around it, and Gall recalled that, quote, the readout showed an object that appeared to have body proportions, smaller at its head section, a neck and a protuberant body structure with what appeared to be a tail attached. If my memory serves me correctly, there were also side appendages, end quote. Later, back on land, Gall and the team were driving down Highway 97 toward Peachland when they saw something mysterious in the water. They pulled to the side of the road and had their cameras ready. A large shape had broken through the lake's surface approximately 40 feet away and was churning up the water. Protrusions of some kind came out of the water as it moved toward shore, and one of the crew swore that it had flippers. Suddenly, the object made two graceful circles in the water and vanished, leaving everyone speechless. 
The Japanese interpreter later remarked, quote, I just considered this another assignment and really believed it was something like a fairy tale. Now I know different, end quote. Others weren't as convinced. Clyde Farnsworth of the New York Times later lamented, quote, The film and photos later showed only a disturbance in the blue-gray waters, end quote. Despite the lackluster footage, the TV show's director wasn't dismayed. Far from it, in fact. The following February, they were back, this time with a submarine and a 200-pound remote-controlled camera. They also brought along an Egyptologist, for some reason. I get the impression that he was just happy to be there, especially after he was told that he could pilot the submarine. Unfortunately, the winter weather complicated this second search, and they failed to get anything really exciting. Since then, countless others have tried their best to investigate the elusive mystery of the lake, but the world is still waiting for that one clear shot of the legendary Okopoko. Until then, we can only rely on eyewitness reports to answer that all-important question. What does Lake Okanagan's most famous resident look like? Part 4. Sightings there are now hundreds of well-documented sightings, and the details vary considerably, but if we take the most common elements of each, a picture begins to emerge. The size of the creature is the most variable, ranging from 2 meters to 22 meters long, about the length of a tennis court or a semi-truck and trailer. Its skin has been described as smooth and shiny, sometimes with scales, sometimes not. Most people agree that it's dark in color, but the hue can vary between green, blue, black, and gray. The head is perhaps the most striking, said to closely resemble that of a sheep or horse, with whiskers on its pointed nose and protrusions at the top of its head that are assumed to be either horns or ears. The body is the most iconic, long and thin like a giant snake that undulates in the water appearing as a series of humps that look like half-submerged tires. Quite often, it has fins or flippers and a forked tail. Though Johnny McDougall was the first person to have a recorded encounter with the creature, he never actually saw it. Though he watched in terror as his horses were pulled beneath the surface, the cause of the tragedy was hidden beneath the waves. That means that the earliest sighting on record actually belongs to his friend Susan Allison, who saw it one windswept sunny day in the late 1870s. The following is her account, written in her own words, recollected years later after Ogopogo became a household name. I saw just after a night of a terrific storm, tops of strong pines were wrenched off and blown about like straws. Toward morning, I went to a cliff overlooking the lake to see if there was any chance of our boat returning from the mission. The wind was indeed subsided, but there was still a strong current sweeping down to Penticton, too strong still for our light little boat. The sun was shining and I stood on the cliff admiring the beautiful lake when I observed above the harbor what at first I took for an uprooted pine. I was trying to think, where could it have been torn from? Then I observed that instead of floating down the lake with the current, it was coming rapidly up the lake toward where I stood. It passed the harbor and still came on with a swift, undulatory motion, just like a huge log in the water going the wrong way. I watched it pass me and disappear around a bend, feeling convinced that it was a living creature. It looked just like the trunk of a huge pine, 
but I saw neither the head nor tail. It was not a bit like the serpent since seen by the others, but it might have been a big saurian, and I'm convinced that it was one. Susan told her husband about what she saw when he returned from Father Pandozzi's mission. And though he initially laughed at her, he also remarked that a man who had come to the mission reported seeing the exact same thing from the opposite side of the lake. They assumed he had been drinking. After the expansion of the railroad and the influx of settlers from eastern Canada and Europe, more and more people would claim to have seen something mysterious in the vast stretches of the sparkling lake. Here are just a few highlights. In 1890, Thomas Shorts, the captain of the steamer the SS Penticton, saw a mysterious creature he couldn't identify. Before it dove out of sight, the captain noted that it was around 14 feet long, with translucent fins, and a head like a ram. In the summer of 1906, six-year-old Ruth Richardson was playing on the beach near her parents' summer home, about eight kilometers south of Vernon, B.C. In an interview with Smithsonian Magazine 72 years later, she recalled, quote, I was building my sandcastles when I heard an awful kerplush of a heavy body. I looked up and there were two huge eyes looking right at me from about 25 feet away. I was frightened. I was paralyzed, end quote. Ruth described the creature as prehistoric, with scales that were five inches thick across a body that she estimated was about 10 meters long. It had a horse-like head. It watched her curiously for a few moments before slipping beneath the water. On Monday, July 19, 1926, John Logie, a local businessman whose veracity was unquestioned according to the Vernon News, spotted, quote, a ripple and swell, end quote, close to the lakeshore as he and his family drove north along the west side of the lake. The ripple stood out on the otherwise calm surface, and as they drew closer, they saw what John described as, quote, a strange-looking animal, less than 50 feet from shore, end quote. Its head was similar to that of a sheep, and its body was dark in color, rising a few inches out of the water and extending back about 15 feet. Even more remarkably, the mysterious animal seemed to be keeping pace with the car, quote, making the spray fly and a swell over a foot high, end quote, though the vehicle was moving roughly 40 kilometers per hour. As they gained on the creature, it seemed to hear the excited chatter and dove down, then reappeared 30 or 40 feet ahead. John and his family watched it for another few minutes until the road turned up a hill. Later, they would learn that the people in the car behind them had seen it too. On a hot August day in 1936, two teenage boys, Jeffrey Tozer and Andy Aikman, were canoeing across the lake when they saw something they would never forget. It appeared near the mouth of Mission Creek, about four kilometers south of Kelowna's William R. Bennett Bridge. Here is the story in Jeff's own words, as quoted in Arlene Gall's book, In Search of Okopogo. So I was rowing, and Andy was sitting in the stern, and we hooked a fish. So I shipped the oars and reeled in my line, and I netted the fish for Andy. And we were both, we were both excited at actually catching a fish and had no thoughts of an ogopogo or a sea creature, anything like that. This whole thing took about two minutes on the boat, and at that time, we were drifting to within, oh, 20 yards or so, I guess, of a large group of seagulls. And suddenly, 
they all just started to screech in terror and they took off out of there as straight as they could. Following them was the head and neck or body or something of a huge creature. When the gulls reached the height of, I want to say 12 or 14 feet, the creature grabbed one of these gulls in its mouth and disappeared back below the surface, leaving just like a few ripples on the lake. It started all the other gulls within hundreds of yards of this flying and screaming and feathers were flapping about and O.L. Jones, this guy, had a summer cabin nearby so he comes running from the cabin with his children to see what the noise was all about. Andy and I are in the boat, scared to death, giving up our great fishing expedition on the spot. We spent that night as far up the lake as possible. We were on the Jones Beach and we headed for home as soon as it was light out the next morning. Later, somebody asked me about the size of that creature. I remember saying it was as big around as a telephone pole and the color was dark and and fish-like, but it had a head like a cow. I could go on and on about the sightings. There are so many. As the area's population exploded and technology improved, sightings became even more frequent and more persuasive. When the bridge linking West Bank and Kelowna was being constructed in the mid-1950s, divers on the work team told stories about large, unidentified aquatic animals looming in the darkness at the bottom of the lake. Some were so shaken by what they saw, they quit on the spot. In 1968, Art Folden and his family captured the first-ever footage of the supposed creature from their vantage point along the side of Highway 97. The grainy film, shot on Art's 8mm movie camera, shows a long, dark shape submerging and resurfacing in the water multiple times about 300 yards from shore. In 1987, John Kirk managed to record his own footage on videotape. Arlene Gall described it as, quote, a black moving object at first, later replaced by an almost stationary object displaying several black humps out of the water, but with no discernible head, end quote. In 1998, the crew of the Okanagan Princess cruise ship picked up a 60-foot-long shape on sonar. It seemed, to the bewildered crew, to be a creature with flippers and a long tail. One of the most compelling pieces of evidence within the last decade was captured just last year in October of 2022. According to an article on Global News, Dale and Colleen Hanchar, along with their friend Myrna Germain Brown, were out boating on Okanagan Lake taking advantage of an unseasonably warm autumn day when they spotted something unusual in the water. Dale told reporters, quote, We went on by and I got thinking about it, and I said to Myrna and my wife, That didn't look right. We've got to go look at that again, end quote. Circling back, they got within 10 feet of the object and snapped a photo. The result is a striking image that, at first glance, appears to be the head of a creature just below the rippling surface. It matches many of the descriptions provided by eyewitnesses throughout the decades. Dark, green-brown in color, its head is similar in shape to that of a ram or a horse with a pointed nose, and two horn-like protrusions at the top that just barely clear the water. No body is visible, but it does look like there may be a long neck descending straight down before fading from view. You can even see what appears to be an eye staring straight ahead while the other half of its face is cast in shadow. 
We're all so used to seeing blurry photos and videos, and this image is so clear by comparison that it immediately spurred a strong reaction online, with many accusing the Hanchars of either creating a physical hoax, doctoring the digital image, or even using artificial intelligence to generate the rather disquieting photo. In my opinion, it seems unaltered and the eyewitnesses sincere. It's up to the viewer to decide whether it's truly the Ogopogo or just a large diving bird photographed at an awkward angle. And that leads us to the final part of this episode. Part 5. The Big Question It's clear by now that people are seeing something in Okanagan Lake. So the big question is, what exactly are they seeing? Arlene Gall seemed fairly convinced that the lake is host to a family of rare, endangered, prehistoric animals. The exact species seems to have been kept purposefully vague. Along the same line of thinking, many believe that the Ogopogo is actually a plesiosaur. Once plentiful in saltwater and freshwater bodies throughout the world, the marine reptile became extinct approximately 66 million years ago. But Gall suggests that a clutch of fertilized eggs may have survived, preserved by the glacier ice that would eventually form Lake Okanagan. When the ice age ended, the eggs hatched, and the Mesozoic marvels made the best of their strange new surroundings. The late Dr. Roy McCall, a biologist at the University of Chicago, suggested it could be a Zooglodon, a prehistoric whale that lived 20 million years ago, but that may have found a way to survive in underground rivers and lakes that connect to the sea. Susan Allison wrote that she was convinced the creature was an amphibian of some kind, given that it was said to devour its prey on the shores of its island. The Silk elder Dave Parker shared a memory with Gall that supports Ellison's impression that the quote-unquote creature traversed both land and water. Quote, In my early days, I heard people talking about tracks going over the land, the kind of tracks a large serpent would make, end quote. And then there are the skeptics, who contend that the supposed creature of the lake is not some sort of supernatural or cryptozoological creature, but something far more mundane, like a log, a rogue wave, a school of fish, or a beaver. When gazing upon the vast stretch of water that is Okanagan Lake, it can be incredibly hard to judge the size and the scale of what you see. So, they suggest that the 15-foot creature spotted from the shore is, in actuality, just a 3-foot otter looking for its lunch. According to one popular theory, the creature is simply a white sturgeon, a rare fish that can grow to enormous sizes and live in lakes, rivers, and coastlines from Alaska to California. Now, I found this argument to be one of the most compelling, until I learned that no one has ever caught one, or even seen one, in Okanagan Lake. It's worth noting, however, that in December of 2022, at the same time I was writing this episode, Bob Cronbauer, the founder of Vancouver is Awesome, revealed a photo of what seems to be a sturgeon skull that he found on a Kelowna beach back in 2016. Though the sturgeon explanation is still hotly debated, Arlene Gall reminds us that the monster's fish rarely grow to the incredible size that would match the average witness's description, and would rarely, if ever, approach the surface. Joe Nickel, a writer and senior research fellow for the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, proposed a very compelling argument in the book Lake Monster Mysteries. 
According to Nickel, the creature, with its telltale head, humps and flippers, undulating movement and incredible speed, is nothing more than a family of otters swimming in a line. Finally, of course, we have the tradition of the Sea Elk people, which tells us that the being of Okanagan Lake is Nhahaitk, the spirit of the lake. You don't call him Ogopogo, you call him by his name, as one traditional knowledge holder told Indigenews. So does that mean that the lake creature that so many people have seen throughout the years is the same thing as the sacred being of the water? Well, I think it depends on your perspective. If you're intent on declaring it a demon, a cryptid, or a dinosaur, I'd say no. To remove that cultural context, to insist that this sacred being is really just a mysterious cryptid or a long-extinct creature from millions of years ago, is to strip it of its value. In my opinion, this original name fits best because it acknowledges that this being in the lake is indelibly linked to the area's traditional culture. And even if most sightings can be explained away as a log, a fish, or an animal, well, that can be sacred too. It's a sign of a healthy, thriving ecosystem, and that the spirit of the lake is alive and well. Though Ogopogomania is long over, the name and the image of the mysterious lake serpent managed to become part of a global list of mysterious monsters, referenced in TV shows like The X-Files, Lost Girl, and The Venture Brothers, and showing up as a monstrous boss in the Final Fantasy video game series, and as a card in the Japanese card game Yu-Gi-Oh!, alongside famous cryptozoological creatures like the Chupacabra, Mothman, and, of course, Nessie. The mysterious being in the lake is still an important part of the region's tourism, identity, and culture as well. The reason, I think, is simple. It's fun. It's fun to think about something large, ancient, and mysterious lurking in the lake. It's fun to watch the videos, look at the photos, and hear the stories provided by eyewitnesses. It's fun to imagine how a prehistoric creature might continue to live in a lake surrounded by wineries millions of years after its supposed extinction. And I'll be the first to admit, it's fun to wander the gift shops and see all of the Ogopogo-themed merchandise. The terrible t-shirts, the wine tumblers, the keychains, and the stuffed animals. But I think it's important that we tell the whole story that we recognize the traditions, the people, and the culture at the source of it all, and the meaning behind it. In Lake Monster Mysteries, Benjamin Radford notes how Ogopogo has three separate incarnations, quote, as an indigenous legend, as an elusive biological beast, and as a lovable local mascot. Each Ogopogo reflects the era and expectations of those who embrace it, end quote. With that in mind, I might add one more incarnation to that list. In Hahaitke. Not framed as an ancient indigenous legend, but as what it has always been. The spirit of the water who watches over it and protects it. In the summer of 2021, most of British Columbia was struck with a record-setting extreme heat event that saw temperatures soar over 40 degrees Celsius for several days, killing hundreds of people. Over the last several years, wildfire season in the Okanagan and the interior has grown increasingly volatile, destroying forest habitats, homes, businesses, and, in the case of Lytton, B.C., entire towns, and cloaking the rest in a smoky, toxic haze for weeks on end. 
Since the mid-90s, scientists have been concerned about the dwindling number of fish in Okanagan Lake and the continual loss of natural habitat to development built to house the increasing number of people who are choosing to make the Okanagan Valley their home. As we continue to experience the extreme effects of climate change, and as we further embrace our responsibility to care for the environment, Inhaha Itka can be, I think, a representative of what we should be fighting for. In the end, maybe the lake's most well-known resident doesn't need to be comprehended, classified, colonized, or conquered. Maybe all it really needs is our respect. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember, next time you're out at the lake, be sure to pack out what you pack in. You never know what might be living there. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams, with sound design by Ryan Clark. Stephanie Phillips is our showrunner. Mary Jubrin is our digital editor. Diana Key is our business manager. Jordan Heath-Rawlings is our executive producer. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can provide story ideas and more through my website. Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.